you know, for the longest time, as many of you know, before I became a lawyer and certainly before I became a priest, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And so for years, I read a lot about the theory of making films. And one of the things that kind of came across really early on, this might sound kind of obvious to, to many, but perhaps not, this idea that films, by their very nature, are meant to be primarily visual in nature. And so you're meant to kind of tell the story, not so much primarily through words, but rather through visuals, through images. And so as a point of comparison, think about live theater, right? And so, for example, when you see a Shakespearean production, you're not surprised, you're not scandalized that there's a lot of talking, right? Because you know intuitively that that particular art form, that particular version of performance art is meant to be built primarily around dialogue and a spoken word. But again, more to the point, that's not really the case when it comes to movies, right? And so certainly there can be dialogue, there can be the spoken word in the context of film, but at the same time, the point still remains that when it comes to movies, when it comes to films, the story is meant to be told primarily by what you see as opposed to what you hear in terms of, again, the spoken word. And one great example of this is Steven Spielberg, certainly one of the great filmmakers of our own generation, right? And so when you watch Spielberg's movies, whether we're talking about, for example, Schindler's List or any one of the Indiana Jones movies, it's kind of interesting. You can actually turn the sound off and still know what's going on. You can follow the plot. You can even know what certain characters are, are thinking and feeling because Spielberg has a secure understanding of the inherent nature of film. Again, this idea that the story is meant to be conveyed primarily through images as opposed to the spoken word. Now, the reason why I'm spending so much time in this in the early going is because it's a really great way to understand this really interesting concept in Catholic theology known as the prophetic gesture. And so the word prophetic comes from the word prophet, which in turn means someone who speaks God's truth. And so given all that, the whole idea behind the prophetic gesture is that you're trying to convey God's truth, not primarily through words, but rather through things that you do. And the thing I want to impress upon you, at least in your early going here, is that this is a really important principle to keep in mind, especially dealing with difficult circumstances and difficult people. And so to further illustrate the point, think about the example of Bishop Robert Barron, right? And so he talks about this particular principle indirectly when he talks about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so just to kind of walk through these things one at a time, Bishop Barron says that, for example, when it comes to the truth, when you tell people, like, this is how you're supposed to think, they tend to get their backs up, right? In the same way, when you pitch to someone the good, this is what you're supposed to do, again, similarly, someone can be easily offended. But when you present to them the beautiful thing, or, dare we say, the prophetic gesture, what you're simply inviting them to do is to look and think what you will, feel what you will, in response to this beautiful thing, or again, the prophetic gesture. But you see, therein lies the great brilliance of the prophetic gesture, right? Because it comes across as being non-aggressive. And so you're not overtly telling someone what to think or what to feel, but the whole idea is that if you're very intentional and purposeful about creating the prophetic gesture in a particular way, the person will think and feel what you want them to think. Where at the same time, it's kind of convincing. It's more convincing to that person because they believe they came up with the conclusion on their own. And so to further illustrate the point using an example from the gospel, think about the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, right? And so in the context of the very famous Sermon on the Mount, the Lord talks about Leviticus chapter 24, right? So he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And obviously by referring to this really famous Old Testament passage, the Lord is alluding to this principle of proportionality. And so for example, if someone punches you in the face, it's not proper to kill them in response. You're called to give at most a proportionate response, right? So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You punch me, at most I punch you back, that kind of thing. But anyways, and kind of more to the point, in the context of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, the Lord sort of ups the ante, right? So some variation of you have heard it said to you this, but now I say to you that. 
And so again, you have heard it said to you, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But now I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on to articulate three examples of the so-called prophetic gesture. And so, for example, he basically says, well, look, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And this is not meant to be a weak move or a passive move, but it's meant to be very courageous, very brave, very intentional, right? Because just kind of picture the situation. Someone strikes you in the face and you don't flinch. Maybe you even look them in the eye and you turn the other cheek. It's a very non-aggressive, but at the same time, very effective move to provoke the wrongdoer into a stance of right behavior. To use another example, the Lord basically says, well, look, if you're being robbed and someone's trying to steal your shirt, give them your cloak as well, right? And so the end effect is that you're actually naked, right? And again, same principle, right? Your nakedness is meant to provoke the other person to kind of question whether or not they're actually doing the right thing. Third and final example might not be immediately intuitive, but the idea is that if someone in a position of authority forces you to walk a mile as a mode of punishment, perhaps you might walk two miles. Again, to give them a certain time and space to perhaps reconsider their own actions to give them a certain breathing room over the course of the two miles to think to themselves that perhaps what I'm doing is not quite fair or perhaps even completely unjust. Okay, one final example, and I'll kind of end with this. And so recently I was on YouTube and I saw this really interesting clip from this documentary, this basketball documentary called Linsanity, which basically documents the rise of this really famous basketball star named Jeremy Lin in 2011 and 2012. Now, I got to admit that I'm not a huge basketball fan, but from what I can gather based on my research and based on my you know, watching of this clip, uh, Jeremy Lin kind of came to prominence in 2011 when a bunch of injuries hit the New York Knicks. And so Jeremy Lin was a bench player up to this point, but all of a sudden, because of, again, injuries, he rose to prominence as the starting point guard for the New York Knicks. And then he proceeded to kind of rattle off a huge number of points in a really short period of time, which gave rise to this movement called Lin Sanity. Basically, this idea that the world was completely captivated by the rise of this Asian NBA star, especially, of course, Asian communities throughout the course of the whole world. Anyways, arguably, the peak of Lin Sanity came about in February 2012, when Jeremy Lin and the Knicks were about to play Kobe Bryant and the Los Angeles Lakers. And so basically, just to kind of set things up, in the aftermath of the previous Lakers game, Kobe Bryant was being interviewed by the press, and specifically, he was being interviewed about Jeremy Lin. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of people will remember this interview in a sense of Kobe basically dissing Jeremy Lin, in a sense of saying, I have no idea who Jeremy Lin is. But if you watch the clip, that's not exactly what he says, right? So what he says is he's heard of Jeremy Lin, but he just isn't aware of the recent exploits of Jeremy Lin, which has given rise to Lin sanity. In any case, as the story goes, Jeremy Lin apparently heard about this post-game interview by Kobe Bryant and then went on to play the game of his entire career, right? And so the Knicks beat the Lakers, Jeremy Lin outscored the legendary Kobe Bryant, and I think he even scored the winning basket, right? And this gave rise to this really interesting post-game news conference. So obviously everyone knew the question that was going to come, right? So everyone knew that the press was going to lead with this question, you think Kobe knows you now, right? And Jeremy, this is kind of more to the point, in the context of the documentary, he talks about this moment, right? So he actually had a plan, right? And so basically what he says in, in the documentary is that going to the game, he had this dream that he would like dominate the game and then he would go to this post-game press conference. The question would be asked and he would say in response to, you know, do you think Kobe knows you now? He would say, who's Kobe, right? So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But then what he did instead, like in the moments, he actually prayed about it. And this comes through in a documentary, right? So he actually prayed about it. 
And so what he says in the documentary is that I, I stopped. And again, I was going to say that thing, who's Kobe? But then I stopped and I prayed about it. And I, I kind of asked myself, what would Jesus do? And I kind of came to the conclusion almost immediately that, you know, Jesus probably wouldn't say that. So what he said instead was, I don't know, you have to ask Kobe. Okay, now the reason why I bring up that particular example is because in my mind, it's infinitely relatable, right? And so a lot of times, you know, just kind of think about it. Whenever we are wronged by someone in some way, we think to ourselves, well, gosh, I have the right to do whatever I want in response to the wrongdoing, right? So uh, maybe we limit ourselves in terms of proportionality, but at the same time, we maintain this Old Testament thinking of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, responding with sort of an answering violence, if you will. But in those moments, we need to remember the gospel, right? And so again, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. And on top of that, think about what kind of prophetic gesture can I do in response to the wrong which has been done? Mindful of the fact that this person who has wronged me in some way, this person is not really my enemy. The enemy is always the devil. The enemy is always sin. And so what is the Lord calling me to do to bring my enemy back into the fold? Mindful that this person at the end of the day is my brother or sister in Christ. And so just to kind of bring it back to the example of Jeremy Lin, if he had said in response to that question, who's Kobe, you know what would have happened? Like everyone would have laughed and no one would have faulted him for giving that type of response, you know, because, you know, Kobe offended me. And so I have a right, if you will, to respond with a certain answering violence. But give him credit. He prayed into it. Again, what would Jesus do in response to the situation? And so he didn't stand on his rights, but he kind of asked himself, what is the prophetic gesture I'm called to do in this particular moment? And you see, here's the thing, right? Was Kobe actually changed in response to Jeremy Lin's action or his decision to not lash out in response to the perceived slight or wrongdoing? Who knows? I have no idea. I have no idea if Kobe was actually changed, but that's not the point, right? Whenever we choose to engage in a prophetic gesture to try to lead our brother or sister back into the fold, and we do it out of love for God, in obedience to his will, that is a particular moment which is always meaningful in the context of salvation history. And so, I don't know, I can only speak for myself, but you know, when I saw that scene from that documentary on YouTube, it changed me. It changed my heart. So much, in fact, that I felt it necessary and important to share the story with all of you, with the hope and the aspiration that it might change your heart too. And may God bless you all.